You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Stephanie Kellerbottom is a classic example of an entrepreneur who has done her work in global companies and also bridging between global companies that are very innovative and the startups that need to work with global companies in order to bring their products and services to market. How many of you carry a Visa card? Hands up in the audience. Okay, well you've been touched by the technology that uh, Stephanie influenced when she was doing innovation and strategy for Visa back at an earlier part in her career. career. How many of you have a product somewhere at home or maybe on your person from a company called Hewlett Packard? A few, few people who are using technology and products and services from HP as well. Stephanie also helped with the innovation and the strategy of that very interesting global company at a time when it was actually at its doing a very nice job of growing and, um, and innovating back in the um, mid to late 90s. And then Nokia stole her. And Nokia, how many of you have a Nokia handset or some sort of Nokia device that you made? That's, that's pretty good share. So? 34%. Which I think is, <laughs> is, uh, is, a, is that right on with, with the, uh, the global average? We think Silicon Valley might be a little bit higher than, than uh, some other parts of the world, but who knows. So um, if you think of what would be a really cool career to have, it would be to help startups who are trying to figure out how to work with these big global companies to do innovative things to change the world. And that's really what Stephanie's been doing through most of your career. So we're delighted to have you here with us at Stanford. Can't wait to hear what the story is about. And let's uh, welcome Stephanie here um, to ETL today. Thank you, Tom. Of course, Bill Gates makes sure that everybody has to stop and pay him homage before any presentation can go forward. And in this particular circumstance, it is doing just that. While it's deciding that it's going to work for us, um, let me tell you that uh, I appreciate uh, the invitation to speak here. Uh, I am first generation to the United States. My father is about 90 years old. And when I told him I was speaking at Stanford, when he quit laughing uh, because he couldn't quite believe it, uh, because he doesn't understand what I do, uh, he proceeded to, to, to ask me a number of questions about what would I have to offer uh, a group of Stanford students. And so I hope when you leave the room you could answer my father's question. Uh, if he should find you on the street and ask you if you listen to his daughter, please tell him, yes, you did get something out of this, uh, because I'm afraid he would be so disappointed. And I do appreciate being here. So what I want to do is spend the next half an hour talking to you about what InEvent is and what we do. And given that you are brilliant students in varying careers of your development, we're not going to use what you're used to, which is the case study. Uh, everybody uses a case study. I just see one young man there went, yeah, please don't. We're not going to use a case study today. We're going to use something a little bit different. Whoops. We're going to use a fairy tale to talk about an event because people in general in the industry 
and external to the industry can't really believe that a model like this exists. And so for a while, people are not quite sure what we do and how we do it and why it's so different. So I'm going to tell you the fairy tale of InEvent and how it came to be. And then we're going to talk about what that means to the generation of entrepreneurs that are sitting in this room and that ultimately will follow you. And I'm going to keep it to about 30 minutes so that we can have a discussion afterwards. Oops. As you can see, I'm not technology-oriented. Um, once upon a time in the kingdom of large companies, there was a real pressure on earnings. And all of a sudden, companies about 10 to 15 years ago started talking about this topic of innovation. What did it mean? And it wasn't driven by the fact that companies love to create new things. What companies love is consistent reporting to their shareholders and to Wall Street. And they don't like to miss forecasts. So as companies like Nokia, like Motorola, like P&G, like uh, Boeing, across industries begin to grow. They experience double-digit growth, perhaps for 10 to 15 years, which Nokia has done. Nokia is a 130-year-old company. And how many of you here know what the word Nokia means? And how many of you know what Nokia started to do when it first was a company? Actually, it was a rubber boots and paper products company 135 years ago. And the word Nokia is a river. It's a river in Finland where the first factory was built. So in this kingdom of Nokia that started out as a rubber and paper products company, uh, they changed their company from rubber and paper products and leveraged base station technologies because when people talk about the frozen tundra, they're talking about Finland. And so for large expanses of geography, you don't have telephone communication lines. So the need for connectivity and communication gave rise for a, a very small company to grow over 15 years to one that had about 43% of the market share globally, is the second largest provider of GSM networks in Europe, and is considered to be one of the premier product innovators. But this company, as most large companies, began to notice that they really needed to begin to address that they were becoming a commodity in the market. Anybody that produces product ultimately becomes commoditized if they don't move innovation forward. So <clears throat> this is a, 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 a funny little way of saying um, in corporate cultures, in kingdoms, sometimes all the king, the king and all of his men or women don't realize what they're going to do to create the next generation. And that's where InEvent was. In this kingdom, InEvent was created. Uh, we were created about five years ago under the auspice of the executive management team uh, in Nokia, led by, at the current time, Pekala Pietala, the president of Nokia. And what they wanted to do was to broaden Nokia's vision, to create a company that was focused around the needs of the consumer and that built their product from the consumer out instead of from the technology in. 
And so how does one do that? One needs to get very broad market perspective. So we created InEvent with the hypothesis that there is no king or kingdom that can actually grow without acquiring external knowledge and being able to take that knowledge and integrate it with the core competencies that reside in its own kingdom. So Nokia needed to reach out to a different community to get their perspective, to understand how to change and evolve so that they could continue to lead the communications revolution. And how effective Nokia is at that depended upon the way in which we approach the market. And you are the people in the room that represent the market that we decided to go after. And that was we wanted to leverage the entrepreneurial market, the small startup company. And I'm not talking about the small startup company of 40 people that's already received Series A financing. I'm talking about those of you that are taking your ideas, putting them on the back of a napkin perhaps, uh, you've then raised friends and family money, uh, and you've maxed out your credit cards, and now you really want to take your idea to the market, but you're not quite sure how to do it. In order for us to appeal to that market, we actually had to look at ourselves and say, what do we need to do differently than we're doing now? And what we recognized was that we had to develop a model that was a mirror of what the entrepreneurs were. The only way you can talk to an entrepreneur is by speaking their language. Just like any two different cultures, if you can't agree on a common lingua franca, you can never communicate with each other. So by design, we are a group who has the attributes of an entrepreneurial startup versus a corporate venturing or strategy organization. And what does that mean? Number one, we are predictive and future-based, which means that we are not looking for what's going to produce revenue in two years. We are looking for the disruptive innovation that perhaps is five years away from actually moving from a beachhead market entry strategy into the mass market. What that means is we're going to face the same challenges any startup would. Uh, how many of you here have ever dealt with venture capital people to get investment money? Those of you that are still living, I congratulate you because it's a very difficult task for a startup. All respect to DFJ, they're a good organization as many are, but everybody faces the same challenges when dealing with investors. The first thing is you're very, your market is very uncertain. If you're three to five years out, I don't think there's anybody that could clearly predict that they know the path to ROI. Secondly, there's going to be gaps in information while you are trying to determine your market entry strategy based on who your consumer is, whether it be enterprise or consumer. There's going to be gaps when you try to figure out who your competitors are or who your ecosystem partners really need to be. And so information evolves, and investors are always asking you, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. We face the same thing when we deal with our entrepreneurs. Noki always asks us, tell me, tell me, tell me. So we serve as an information gap. 
filled in the information gap. We have soft assets. And if people know, you know what soft assets are. They're things like, can you create a brand? What is your intellectual capital before it becomes protected by IPR? What is your team like? What is your network like? Those are very soft assets, but they're vital to an entrepreneur. And as I said, your market is very volatile. There is only prediction and the acceptance of risk in our companies. There is no certainty. And as I mentioned, one of the most important things is that we do not believe there is any company in today's market that can move quickly enough to create a product and control the market. We believe that you must collaborate today. You have to have an ecosystem of players that you will share incentive with. What that means is nobody gets 100% of the pie anymore. If you're going to go to market, you need to go to market with an understanding that negotiations are no longer about control, they're about collaboration. And entrepreneurs understand that very well. They understand it sometimes better than most corporations. And they also understand how to leverage resources. What that means is in large corporations, there's a lot of money. And so ideas tend to keep going even when perhaps there's no merit because people are intellectually invested in the idea. Now, what that means for the entrepreneurs is that they bring a ruthless market discipline to a large corporation like Nokia. Think about it. If you're an entrepreneur and you're not getting market traction because you don't understand your customer and you have nobody that goes into prototype with you, you have nobody that's going to pilot with you, you're never going to get to revenue. Now, large companies would have a tendency to keep going and keep burning money to get the idea of fruition. Entrepreneurs can never do that. So they move quickly, and what it does is it forces the hand of the corporation to move at the speed of an entrepreneur. And so that's an enormous amount of value that is bring, brought. And then finally, the InnoVent model was really designed to mitigate risk. Uh, I'm sure most of the people in the room here have heard of real options theory. Who's ever worked with real options theory past Black Shoals? Okay. Oh, look forward to it. You'll enjoy it. Um, it is really a science by which the more uncertain your solution is, the higher the value of the investment. So in investment terminology, it means that you place a number of small bets and you hope that one of those bets which you have placed allows you a seat at a table to play the game when the market really starts to move. And since you don't know which market's going to move or what's, what solution is going to be the right solution, you're paying to play. And we can do that very nicely under this model because we invest small, we invest early, and we do it to such a degree that when we do get you into a Series A round, there are no terms in there that are going to prevent somebody like DFJ or uh, Sequoia from coming in and going into an A round with you. So you help us mitigate our risk, and we help you mitigate yours. And so as we grew up, we were born 
three years ago, four years ago, in terms of actually entering the market. As we grew up, we learned a lot about creating what we call these risk or growth options. We have not committed to Nokia that we create new businesses, because if you commit that you're creating new businesses, all of a sudden you find a target that says, in two years, you want $200 million in sales. Let me tell you that there's no company that's produced $200 million in sales in two years unless they've acquired revenue. So that's a very unrealistic target, and we didn't want to get stuck in a situation where we were being measured by the wrong metrics and then setting our entrepreneurs up for failure. So we don't commit new businesses, and we don't say we're venturing. Because we're not venturing. Actually, what we're doing is we're exploring. So we've learned that when you position yourself as an exploratory vehicle in very early stage markets, and you build it on the basis of a hypothesis. We believe that this is what consumers are going to be looking for with respect to media consumption. You tend to take corporate biases and you bring them down. Every corporation has a bias. And it's generally around what their core business generates as revenue. So nobody wants to challenge either the customer or the distribution channel that brings them revenue. And that's across industries. So when you start experimenting, if you're experimenting in a new market and you're trying to do something that the company doesn't do today, you're necessarily threatening the core business. And that, in a very strong environment, will bring a lot of bias and it will bring a lot of resistance. We were given the autonomy to actually separate ourselves from the core business, base our investments on hypothesis versus uh, a forecast of return, and that allowed us to begin dealing with corporate biases in a very positive way. We're efficient, and I'm going to show you a chart of how efficient we actually are if you compare our exploration process to those of other methodologies. Um, as I said, we spread our risk over a very diverse spectrum. And our entrepreneurs represent a very diverse spectrum. We have four-time entrepreneurs, the serial entrepreneurs, as they're called. We have first-time entrepreneurs. And we have individuals that are actually under government funding. So they've taken no institutional money. They've taken government money. And now they're wanting to go into their first round of investment financing for a corporation. Very diverse group of people, and we are very disciplined. Um, this is a story of how what people think couldn't happen actually came to be, but it's not a fairy tale in terms of having real soft processes. We are a very disciplined innovation group. Uh, we are probably as disciplined, if not more, than a number of other types of investors. And as we grew up, we learned how to play with others. That's the most important lesson you learn when you grow up, is how to play with others. Um, and this may sound like something very small, but actually, as you begin to build your own businesses, what you're going to find is it's very rarely about the technology. It's very rarely about your marketing. What it's about is your ability to work with competitors as collaborators at one point, it's about your ability to take people that are diverse and align their interests and directions. And it's also about your ability to take a team that is very, 
compassionate and get them to change their point of view at varying times during your development of your business, the cycle of development of your business. So let me give you some things that we have found out about working with entrepreneurs and working with others. So if you're an entrepreneur, keep these things in mind as you start to pick your partners and your team. You need to align yourselves, and the most important thing is that you share the same values and direction. Now, that means that if you believe that people are your most important asset, don't partner with somebody that measures you by your headcount and the amount of money that you're going to burn doing things that are important to people like Pizza Friday. Okay? You will learn that those things build your business very quickly. Some companies don't agree with that, some do. Find the companies and the partners that most match the values that you and your management team have. That is the most important element of success. Make sure that you have an exit strategy, and we're going to look at a few numbers in a while that are going to tell you why today that's probably as important as it was in 2000 and 2001. And make sure that your assets are aligned, meaning don't replicate competencies. If you have the technology and you don't have the marketing, don't find a company that actually has competing technology. Find one that has marketing. So make sure you're bringing to the table complementers versus people that share your skills, and then you will be able to move it forward much more quickly. Get a very broad set of perspectives. The first thing any entrepreneur should do, whether they're going to partner with a corporation or not, get an advisory board. Not your board of directors yet. Get an advisory board. You need people of varying interests, legal, technology, finance, governance, and audit. Make sure you get people that are seasoned, that ultimately may become your board. But today, they will help guide you in dealing with very large companies like Nokia, like Oracle. You need that kind of seasoning. They're one of the most important things you can have. Get focused. I don't know how many business plans we've seen where entrepreneurs are going to develop seven products at the same time and go to three different markets. Don't boil the ocean. Find a beachhead strategy, get focused, and go for it because that will control your burn rate. And that is absolutely critical when you're going to have a long cycle time to develop your market. Assume the capital that you get is the last that you're ever going to have. So if you get a half a million dollars on your pre-Series A round, assume that that's the last that you're going to ever get, because I guarantee you if you look at it from that perspective, you'll never waste your money. Be flexible and take coaching. When we meet with entrepreneurs, when we sit in the room with them, if they're uncoachable, or they're not flexible about their ideas, it goes to our values. We will not deal with people that think they have all the right answers, because nobody does. And if you spend more time coaching the entrepreneur about their style, you have less time to coach them about the really important things like how to define your market, who's your customer, what's your financial structure, and what's your growth plan. And then. Finally, the first thing that you need to do, the first investment that you make with the capital that you get 
should be a market positioning study. Every entrepreneur I know says they know who their customer is and they know how to get to market. And when you ask them to create a market positioning strategy, guess what? They can't give it to you. Or they'll bounce from one market to the next. The best investment that you can make straight up front is to get a market validation study done, which will help you define who your first market should be, what your pricing strategy should be. Trust me, adequate pricing is not margin plus, and it's also not the idea that your competitor's pricing at this, so you'll price it at this less Y. Who knows what the famous saying is about pricing? Pricing has one way to go, and that's down. And that's a truism. So your market validation study will help you determine what your initial and your ongoing pricing strategy should be. And you need to also understand sustainability. One product does not create a sustainable revenue company. And so as we grew up and we learned these lessons and we shared them with our entrepreneurs, we began to see that we were very efficient. And this is a very traditional trajectory of a new company. All companies invest money at the beginning of their product development cycle, so their financial risk is very high. As the product gets to market, they begin to get some return, and this risk reduces. But any of you that have taken product development courses understand that the original product that you produce is never the product that goes out to the market. It iterates. And so the more risk that you can reduce here, the faster your revenue and the less your iteration and product cycle costs are. This is where we fit in. This is where we are. Because we test the concept before it's ever prototyped. And we do it in the real market with real customers and real entrepreneurs versus in a corporate market research environment. So our trajectory is very much like the red one. And I'm sorry about the eye chart, but actually what this is is a study that was done by Davila, Epstein, and Shelton in terms of comparing costs of organizations across the globe. How much did it cost them to produce one project of radical innovation? And what you'll see is the InnoVent line is in the U.S. That's where we're based. We're the striped blue line. And what you see is both in Asia, the U.S., and Europe, we have the most effective radical innovation cost per project on any of the companies that they looked at. This shows you how much leverage entrepreneurs provide because you are sitting at the center of the market and at the center of the problem, not at the outside. And that reduces innovation costs significantly. And this was the one thing that corporations will always understand. Are you outperforming your peer group in terms of their investment? So our median budget per type of innovation product uh, is pretty impressive. And that there were things that were happening while we were growing up that I think are pretty important because we're at a period of time today in 2005 where most of you have probably heard of that infamous internet bubble. Uh, many of your parents probably you know, didn't get their fourth vacation home because that you know, sure-file de internet deal they had didn't come through. We are now at the same levels 
of bubble period in investment. And I'm going to show you some of these statistics because they should be pretty important to you all. And then I'm going to close in a few minutes so that we can have time for questions. If you look at this, fundraising grew in 2005 while we were growing up. And commitments to venture capital funds, as you can see in 2005, are the highest that they've been since 2001, which was just on the internet bubble. And there you can see that the deal flow and the equity that was actually placed in venture-backed companies in 2005 was the highest it's been since 2001. Once again, that bubble period. And so what's generally going to happen when you do that, and this is just, I, as I walked out my door this afternoon, I picked up my venture wire, and there was the update for the first quarter of 2006. So it's not in graph form, but you can see that that trend is continuing, and it's 18% higher than it was in the first quarter of 05. There's a lot of money out there chasing a lot of transactions, but few, few really good ideas, okay? Um, the deal count 6% over, that's a, a fairly high margin. Uh, once again, the highest level of venture capital invested since 01. And up until this first quarter of 06, the IT sector had fallen behind. There was less investment in IT and more investment in medical uh, devices than anything else. IT has hit a resurgence now in the first quarter, uh, and it's nine more transactions that have really driven that number. And of course, what happens when that happens? There's too few ideas, good ones, a lot of transactions, and a lot of money. Your valuations start going up. And you can see that the trend is going to repeat itself that happened from 1999, 2000, and 2001. Really high valuations that are beginning to peak up very quickly. Um, and what that means for you as a future entrepreneur is understand when you have an investor, the two of you need to agree what your valuation methodology is going to be. Because that's going to determine the amount of money that you make. All right? And it's cyclical. It's not, it is what people will pay for it. It is what people will pay for it today, but tomorrow it might be less. So try not to get caught up in the internet bubble thinking, even though investors will move you in that direction, because that is not sustainable. And we coach our companies to make sure that they understand what the valuation is going to be of their investors. Later stage companies, meaning those companies that are in their Series C round and probably getting ready to go into their exit, their valuations have skyrocketed. People want fast return. So they'll invest in a C stage, wait for 12 months, get a very fast return. And the green line that you see on the top, 40.7, that's later stage transaction. And those were companies that um, were actually developed in the late 90s, so about five years, late 90s, early 2000s. They're about five years old. That's really how long it takes to develop a company that you can put a rational exit strategy around and that you can value fairly tangibly. 
And that's, again, this is an aging of the companies. And most of these companies were actually in business for 5.4 years. And how do they get their, their uh, wealth event? It's around M&A today. Everything today is around mergers and acquisitions. And you can see that if you compare the IPO versus uh, M&A, in 1999 and 2000, this was the crazy IPO market, you know, pets.com, um, you know, buy your water bowl over the internet. Um, that's what you see here was IPO. And that was devastating to the investment market. You will have a lot to say about how this market evolves in 2010, because the companies you start today will be the companies that go forward during that period of time. And the gain is, once again, going up. Uh, 2000, M&A price was very high. One of the things the InnoVent model does is because we're working with the companies, we can evaluate not only the team, in the market, but the technology, it drives our acquisition costs down. If we want to acquire the company, we have a better idea of what their value is. Now, importantly, you need to understand that Nokia has no first right of refusal on these companies. Nokia has acquired the companies in our portfolio, and so have our competitors. Nokia has invested in the first round of these companies, and we've co-invested with competitors. That's because it is purely market-driven and that's to the benefit of the entrepreneur. And that's a really important point to make because we want to know what a company's doing independent of our point of view. We want to know what it's going to do in the market. And then IPO activities regressed. Those people on Wall Street that did IPOs, they're still not going to make as much money today as they did in 2000 and 1999. Once again, that's vintage. This is vintage, uh, 5.6 years, if you were going to go IPO. And the offering size shrunk significantly in terms of average dollars. And good notice for you, two out of five deals went to California, and actually 35% in the Bay Area. This is where the market is. In the right place, the right time. You've got the right advisors and people around you. Um, what's fascinating to me is that New England is 13%, and everybody considers that corridor there, the Washington Beltway, to be a real high opportunity area because of the Homeland Security money. We have outperformed that vector since they started keeping statistics. So Silicon Valley and the ecosystem that exists here is what drives the venture economy, and it is where entrepreneurs need to be. So the moral of our story is that the best way to learn about the future is to understand the past. And for us, that means we take the lessons that we get from our entrepreneurs and we build them into Nokia's corporate strategy. We do not take these and then assume that we get a return in five years and move on. This actually helps Nokia determine our corporate strategy. It will also help you as an entrepreneur get validation of your business. Don't forget that looking at these numbers that I showed you should really help you determine what your growth strategy of your company is going to be. 
Look at the history. Understand the market. See how it evolves because it is predictive of what's going to happen in the future. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When some people see risk, we see opportunity. And you should be the same way. Because whatever filter or metric you put around your business, you need to make sure that that's the same metric that your investor is going to evaluate you on. Never stop going at the goal after the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, it's there sometimes. Sometimes it's not. But I'll tell you, getting there is half the fun. We certainly enjoy it. We've taken our entrepreneurs out of our 19 companies. Three of them haven't made it. We've learned just as much from them as we would have had they been successful. And now two of them are starting businesses over again and we're investing them again. So getting there is half the lesson. Um, and then finally, if things are good to, true, too good to be true, generally they are. Be very deliberate in your activity. Keep your own counsel. Uh, because when somebody approaches you or you approach somebody else and everything's perfect, it never is. And when you start digging into forecasts and sales numbers, I can tell you that you'll learn a lot about whether your values align with your partner. And so if it looks great, look at it a second and third time. Make sure that you're the one that makes the final decisions. Because ultimately, you're the one that's going to build the company, and hopefully one of these days you'll be its CEO. So that's the moral of our story, and I'm open for questions. Yes, I'm going to repeat the question. Can I ask you how, how you being measured internally in Nokia? What's the success for you? The question is, how are we measured internally in Nokia? Um, and I'll be real candid with you and tell you that that depends on the leadership in that particular year. Generally, we are measured by what we consider to be a derivative. Uh, what we've created is an innovation platform. The value of any platform is the cost of the derivative you can build on top of it. So the more we build on the basis of our existing platform, the more successful we're considered. So that's one very hard metric. It's the derivative, the, the, the derivative on the platform. And the next thing is, can our companies actually prototype and build product which matches their IPR and Nokia's IPR together? So can we closely integrate the activity of a startup and Nokia? And, and we do get measured on that number. And there are some entrepreneurs that say, you know, I really don't want to do that because I'm concerned. But most of the time we've developed a relationship where that's not the case. So it's integration into Nokia, uh, how efficient we are building on the platform. And I finally say what really determines whether or not we're successful is if the entrepreneurs come back to work with us again. Because without the entrepreneur, we don't have anything. Yes? Uh, can you say something about the size of the investment, number of investments? The question is the kind of the structure of the portfolio, size, number, type. Uh, we've invested roughly $4 million uh, over three years. We have about 20 companies in our portfolio. So as you'll know, we, develop, we invest small amounts. Our average investment is about 300,000, 300 to 500, and we do stage that investment. 
So as I mentioned to you, we ask that the first part of the investment be directed into what we call the market validation studies. Uh, out of our portfolio, as I said, Nokia has acquired a company. Uh, one of our competitors has acquired them. Uh, and 10 of our companies are either in a B or C round with a major uh, VC right now. that you see on the, on the mobile? The question is about what are the major trends in the mobile market? And I would say that the key trend is that, and this is Nokia's um, kind of vision, is life goes mobile. And so the idea is that you can access anything you want that's considered information, and that's information for any purpose, entertainment, learning, uh, any place, anywhere, anytime. So that's the standard answer. What we're finding is the trend that our entrepreneurs are working on is the ability for people to create peering communities and to be able to take content that is created by the community and actually move into super distribution. And so three years ago, they called it peer-to-peer. And, you know, it was Nutella and Napster. All right, today, that kind of model is going mobile. So if you develop music or a book um, or you're just taking certain things that are important to you, you can take that and mobily distribute it around your community. And, of course, the same challenges face that model as it did in the wired model, which is how do you make money off of it? What's the digital rights management? So it's about the distribution of content and the emergence of the community as the creator of the content is something that we believe is very strong right now. Next question. Um, The only carrier today that I'm aware of that's really becoming active Uh, in this market, and it was in the New York Times last weekend, is Vodafone. And they're actually um, building on their venture capital organization in Walnut Creek. And so we have yet to co-invest with a carrier because generally, well, two things. One, they're coming out of a period of time where they heavily invested in infrastructure, and so there was not a lot of ancillary income uh, to invest. Uh, and secondly, uh, they tend to be focused more on an immediate return. Uh, but I do know that Vodafone is actually making their presence known in the market. And I believe um, Deutsche Telekom in Europe is also very active. But we as Innovent have not invested directly with them. Yes? How does Innovent work with the other division within the Nokia venturing organization? And also, how does it work with the bigger, the modern Nokia company? The question was, how do we work with core Nokia and with big, big mother Nokia? And the question I'll ask to this group, has anybody ever read a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball? <laughs> if you haven't, go Google it, because that answers your question. Um, we orbit as close to the company as we need to, to get our entrepreneurs what they need. We then move away from the company to protect the entrepreneurs Um, and get that feeling of trust that's necessary. And then we orbit back to the company closely again to help create their strategy and to disperse knowledge and information. 
And we do that in a number of different vehicles. We actually hold portfolio days where we bring all of our entrepreneurs into Helsinki. Uh, we bring the research division uh, together with our entrepreneurs. Uh, just for your knowledge, uh, Nokia Research Center is uh, building a huge facility in Mountain View. Uh, there, we've uh, discontinued all of our other U.S. activities, consolidated the sites, and there'll be two sites, one in Mountain View, which will be very large, uh, and they'll be working with Stanford, and one in Boston, which will be working with MIT. So the direct answer to the question is we orbit close and far away depending upon what we need to achieve at the time. Yes? The, question, the first question was, how do we find uh, our entrepreneurs? And the second one is, you know, what's our value proposition? Why would people want to work with us instead of a regular VC? Uh, the answer to your first question is an extraordinary team. Uh, Innovent has an extraordinary team of people that actually are in the market and active day in and day out sourcing uh, new business. Uh, and the characteristics of these people, when they were recruited, they had to have been an entrepreneur. Whether they failed or succeeded at running their own company, they had to have been an entrepreneur. And as I understand from Mike, uh, many people in here have worked for a startup. We wanted people that had worked for startups because they know the problems and they know how to create a partnership that is sustainable. So a great team. We go to a lot of events. Um, we're part of a lot of consortiums, so the first thing is we source actively. The next question is why us? Two reasons why us. Number one, we don't take control, either in our legal documents or in our approach. So the entrepreneur remains the key decision maker. So in our convertible note, which is how we invest, all right, we don't take a controlling interest in the company. When it converts to a Series A round, there's nothing in that structure that will prevent the Series A investor from coming in and leading. And I think the most important point is that traditionally when you invest with a VC, they're going to put their own team in. We believe that if you do that too early, the people that are passionate about the solution uh, become disenchanted, and it never moves forward. So. In a Series A, we wouldn't be the appropriate people to invest with. You would, the VC is the right person then because you're at the right cycle. So the simple answer is we give what the entrepreneur needs at the right time, and then we allow, we move, allow them to move forward uh, prosperously. Other questions? Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciated the opportunity to talk with all of you.